Hi, my name is Noah Suderman, and my dad is a Patreon supporter of Third Floor Wars. I listen to Tabletop Talk because of the hard work and effort that Craig Shipman puts into every podcast so that his viewers can become better Malfoy players. Yeah, if you can learn to do your schemes early on, you're also then aware of what your opponent's going to be trying to do as well, yep. eventually. Um, and then once they're solid in their sort of almost muscle memory of this is how I get my schemes, right, they're done and boxed off early. Like what um, Tom said, you know, you're not having to play catch up and then mm-hmm. you've got that sort of window to try and deny your opponent instead. Howdy folks, Craig here. Yet another path to podium. This time it's the 40 player three round event called Breach in the North that happened in the UK. You Arcanist, Dreamer, and Pandora players should get a lot from these recaps. Those of you that play against Neverborn, you also should learn a lot as well. We go through the different stages and phases of getting better at Malifaux. We talk about what they brought, who they beat, and how they did it. We discuss all the different ways to approach Turf War as a strategy. There's some really good advice on getting ready for an event, and probably my favorite bit is at the end where we talk about how to be a good opponent and how to handle difficult personalities when they're across the table. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we have the podium from the Breach in the North 4 event in the UK. Uh, Now it's run by a friend of the show, Carl Lee, who's been on before, and it had over 40 players battling over three rounds. And I think one thing that's pretty significant about this event is really it's kind of the season ender over in the UK. So they've got Masters coming up in January, and I believe this was the last event um, that would impact the rankings on uh, who would qualify for the UK Masters and who wouldn't. So a lot at stake and it kind of helps us understand that uh you know why so many people showed up for a three uh three round event uh part of that is because carl is uh really good at what he does um and two uh we're seeing a nice surge in popularity um on uh uh, M3E as well so we've got uh three guests everybody that made it to the podium we've got the winner of the event now uh emma newman she's new to the show uh, but uh, not new to Malifaux uh, or the scene in Malifaux. Um, and she did, like I said, take first place. And uh, I've been looking forward to having Emma on the show because uh, we have a common friend, uh, Alex Drake, who listeners are obviously very familiar with Alex. So Emma, welcome to the third floor. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> so I uh, got to know, how did you get started playing miniature games and how did you end up finding Malifaux? Um. So I think unlike a lot of people, I didn't play miniatures games when I was younger. It's when I went to university that I joined the gaming society there. Um, So I started playing like Magic the Gathering um, and 40k. And I used to do 40k tournaments. Um, But I didn't really enjoy the sort of scene very much. I didn't, I found it quite, quite aggressive sometimes, just a bit, a bit much for me. Um, So me and Alex just sort of stumbled across Malifaux because 
we really liked the models and we originally bought them just to sort of paint them. Um, and then we had a test game and we've sort of been hooked ever since. And that was like five years ago, I think. Oh, wow. I, I don't think I realized that you've been playing for that long. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying we were playing well for that long, but... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, very, very cool. Now, our second guest is uh, James Doxey. Um, of course, James has been on the show several times, and I'm going to have links to uh, all of the previous episodes uh, in the show notes. Uh, so if you've missed any of James's episodes, you can grab them there. So James, welcome back to the third floor. Thank you for having me. So yet another podium for you, sir. Congratulations. Um, so what have you been up to since the last time you were on? Yeah, so um, I think since the last time I was on, um, we had the UK Nationals. Um, that didn't go so well for me. Um, I knew going in that there were probably two kind of key um, master and strategy types I didn't want to go go against, um, or t- two masters in two strategies I didn't want to play against at the event. Um, and lo and behold, on day two, I hit both of them. So yeah, uh, slightly disappointing Nationals. Not, not terrible, but uh, not anywhere near as nice as I would have liked. Um, so coming into this event, my scores are kind of set up for masters for the year. So this, this event couldn't affect my, I don't think my placing at all in masters. So I came in to, uh, experiment with some masters. I haven't played uh, too much and, um, sort of fill that gap in my line ready, uh, ready for masters. So yeah, now it's just going to be, uh, prepping up and now uh, do you guys with master, do you get the pools ahead of time or do you get them uh, that day with masters? I think we, I think it's that day. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't take masters overly seriously. I kind of, I kind of view that event as the getting into that event as the prize rather than the event itself. Oh, okay. And uh, I've, I've qualified every year I've competed, and I think the, I think the thing I find with masters is it becomes quite random because you're so skill matched. It tends to depend on what you hit when and who you hit when um, a little bit more um, than, than than other events. So. Uh, I tend to, to relax into it, but sort of, yeah, just trying to fill those gaps in my mind, probably more for the looking ahead to the 2020 season. Right. So if, if I'm understanding it correctly, you're essentially saying that um, it's meaningless who wins Masters, right? I think, uh, I think what, <laughs> <laughs> what we do have a history of what we do is the prize for Masters is the cheapest, plasticist crown we can find, generally That's speaking. Great. One year, I think it was actually a paper Burger King crown um, that, oh, that that's winner, funny. Was, winner was crowned with. Um, so there is a, a tradition of not taking it too seriously. Um, but also, um, you know, it, t- it tends to be, uh, I, I think there's a danger in taking those sorts of sorry, kind of invitational events too seriously. So uh, I, I, tend, I tend to be more relaxed about that one. Plus, no one ever remembers, like, you either qualify for Masters. Qualify for Masters is something. Winning Masters is something. Coming second, 15th, 16th, no one remembers. Right. So, um, yeah. It's one of those where I probably took it more seriously on day two. Um, if, I, if I'm not knocked out on day one, um, if I get towards the final, that's probably when I'm more, uh, more, more worried about it. But, uh, but for now, no, looking ahead to 2020. That's great. So our final guest who got third is uh, Tom Pan. And he, uh, some of you might know Tom from uh, his YouTube channel. He's got a great YouTube channel called TNG Productions, and I'll have a link for it in the show notes. Um, they do a lot of really good content there, cover um, uh, uh, 40K, Guild Ball, uh, not Malifaux, uh, but uh, Tom did take third. And uh, like I said, he's not new to tabletop gaming. So Tom, welcome to the third floor. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. So, Tom, um, you know, you've been playing tabletop games for a while, obviously, and you feature them on your channel. Um, how did Malifaux uh, come into your rotation? Very sideways is the honest answer. We've kind of, I think, similar to Emma, I came into wargaming or tabletop gaming very late. I think this is, I'm within my third year still, and most of that has been oh, wow. 
obnoxiously on camera. So it's kind of a, quite an unnatural way of playing games. And in many respects, the, the skirmish level games that we've played like Guild Ball, Walking Dead, Shadespire, they've all been because they've got uh, an interesting mechanic and something that we can play on camera in a relaxed manner. Now Malifaux was something I had a big interest in based on the lore. I remember literally as soon as I got into wargaming, looking at the miniatures and thinking, these are stunning. You know, what is this game? And looking at the lore and falling in love with it. And it was a, a dismissive flippance probably in my own account of, oh, it's got cards involved. There's no way I can manage that on camera, showing people what I've got in my hand and things like that. And it was only really after playing Shadespire for a few battle reports that actually I kind of went, oh, actually, no, actually, this is, this is doable. And yep. it was just then finding a scene. And in September, I think I started playing Malifaux just at the end of September, start of October, uh, a gaming store about 40 minutes away put a group and you'll know this you're, you're part of many groups of local gaming stores just to chip in for information and ship into getting games and people to find and they just went yep. we're going to run a growth league and it just exploded and i rolled the dice turned up for the day and i've just fallen deeply deeply in love with it and there's a fantastic community there with a real varied meta for want of a better word that has got been so welcoming and so supportive and that's what kind of led to me going to this event yeah, I, it's funny that you say that, Tom, because I've noticed that about Malifaux. And I, don't, I, I still haven't quite figured out why it is, but just uh, all over the world, the, the, the different Malifaux players uh, that I talk to, they, at, at some point they will bring up, you know, the community is part of the reason I got into the game. It, it just, for whatever reason, this game seems to attract just, just a good group of people um, that, that take the game seriously, but aren't for lack of a better word, asshats, um, to play with. Um, they're, to, it's just a welcoming group and I'm, and I'm not sure why that is. I think it's a game that's got a lot of moving parts. And I think with those moving parts and with those varied goals that you can have with each battle, it means there's a lot of discourse between the players. And I'm sure we'll talk okay. about it a little bit later. The master that I've ended up plumping with for my first one also involves a lot of dialogue between the players. And I think any game that does that and kind of, limits the standoffish i'm going to do x and then that's followed by y and it's more i'm going to do x but i think it might do this it mm -hmm. builds that kind of rapport between the players and i think it naturally leads to you having a more enjoyable game you know what i'd not thought about that and the, the other thing that popped in my head as you were talking to tom is i think of uh, compared to a lot of other miniature games out there, there's so much player agency in this game. Um, there's, uh, you know, obviously there's random numbers. Um, the cards are random, but it, it's, it's minimized so much that I also wonder if, um, because the better, the player who made the better decisions generally wins the game. I wonder if that helps with the kind of saltiness that you can get, um, with other games where, you know, the dice go against you and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. You've all got each, everyone's got the opportunities to do something cool every battle. And traditionally, you will yeah. score some level of points. And I think that's massively in Malifaux's favor. Yep, that's a good call. Good call. All right, guys. Um, so what we're going to do um, is we're going to kind of break down round by round. It was three rounds. I want to go through each round and I really want to kind of understand um, how each of these uh, guys approached uh, the pool, uh, what crews they brought, who they played against, what did the opponent bring. And let's kind of figure out how uh, over the course of three rounds, they made that path to podium um, and see if we can't learn a little bit on how to uh, get better so that we can have better successes. So we'll take a quick break and we'll talk about round one. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so uh, first round, um, it was um, an interesting pool. So it's plan explosives, it's standard deployment, and your, the schemes were breakthrough, dig their graves, search the ruins, assassinate, and take prisoner. Now, James, you played uh, Andrew Walker, and you it was a close game. You only won by a point. It was uh, 6-5. Um, so when you looked at this pool, James, did uh, how much was the pool an influence on who you brought? Um, probably the, the pool was less of an influence on, on the fact that I was, I was wanting to play, to play some new masters that I don't, I don't play a lot of, um, and I'm had a lot of practice with. So, um, I, I aim to play Colette in this, this, uh, objective set and she's perfectly suited for it. Um, yep. so broadly, um, went for, went for search, um, and went for search and breakthrough, um, and just you know aim aim to run across the board with uh, with Colette and take and, and put some markers down, which uh, which is the now thing at she that does. point, James. Yeah, at that point, James, how many games of Colette did you have under your belt? Uh, this was probably I'm going to say it was game three. There were probably some at the end of beta or, or uh, just after beta. I think I deliberately didn't play her during the beta period because she always gets a disproportionate amount of testing anyway. Yeah. Um. So I I sort of. I probably played one, maybe two before um, at the end of beats, but recently, yeah, this is probably about game three. Nice, nice. And uh, what did Andrew bring? Uh, so Andrew's a local player, um, someone I play semi-regularly out of our, our, our local game store, um, and he's just switched over to Bayou, um, so he's playing Martucket. Very nice. Um, so can you kind of give us an idea, some uh, key moments in the game or things that uh, allowed you to eke out a, a one-point win? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, our games are always close. So he's a, a very talented player moving over from Guild Ball. Um, we're getting a bit of an influx in the UK at the moment, um, of, of sort of experienced Guild Ball players who seem to, you know, they all seem to be talented when they get across to Malifaux. It obviously translates well. It does. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because we lost a lot of players to Guild Ball when Guild Ball first came out. So it's interesting to see players coming back the other way now. Um, so yeah, I, I think key moments were probably. I think it was. I think it was. It was probably on turn. He dropped a lot of bombs on turn one, which is something I think we've talked about on the podcast before. I, mean, I know a lot of players aim to just get across the board, drop all their bombs on turn one, um, and, and kind of move on from there. Um, and I, I think that's a little bit of a mistake because, to my view, bombs are safer when you're carrying them rather than when they're on the board. Um, right. So. I think on the, on the first turn, he dropped three bombs. And by the end of turn one, I think only one of those bombs was still on the board. And I think that was on wow. his half, half nail. Um, so, so I had quite a, quite an aggressive kind of counter run, um, into that, that turn. And I think that just checked his momentum enough to get over the top. But, uh, I mean, Mars are particularly 
frightening concept when um, you know with the amount of focus shooting you've got because a lot of showgirls defenses predicated on negative uh, to attack flips which uh, doesn't really help you when they're uh, they're focus shooting into you um, so a close game for once I was I was outnumbered by the number of soulstone miners on the board um, <laughs> so, uh, so I brought one he brought two um, but uh, no it was, it, was, it was a good game and it, I think it just came down to that that initial miscalculation of, of sort of dropping dropping his markers a little bit early um, and then that letting me check the momentum uh, and then kind of get a point ahead on the strap. Yeah, I think, I mean, like you said, James, we've talked about, you know, seeding bombs early and whether that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that, I don't think there's a definitive answer there. I think it's one of those things that kind of depends on on board state and the opposing crew. Doing mm. it against Colette is dangerous because, you know, that's a very mobile crew. Um, and so if you're dropping bombs everywhere, it, it doesn't take too much effort um, for uh, Colette's crew to, to get there mm. and collect those. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a there's a thing in Malifaux, and it probably come from uh, Magic the Gathering players probably get this, but the sort of the in, in a control you know when two control decks play each other, you've got to figure out which one of you is the aggressor, um, yep. because you know the you know if you don't figure that out correctly, one of you will lose. So one of you is more aggressive than the other. I think the same is true in Malifaux, both with aggression and with mobility. And I think for a highly mobile crew, sometimes it's it's difficult to recognise when the other crew is more mobile and interactive mm-hmm. than you are. And I think that's probably what it is. I think the the more mobile crew can afford to can can afford to see bombs early and use this use space to control or prevent the enemy from getting at the bombs, but that's very difficult to do uh, for Clap. Yeah, or and you kind of hinted at it, James. Or if you have a a more board state control master, you you can more, more safely drop those bombs mm-hmm. because you're can can protect them um, because you're yeah. you're basically creating such huge threat zones. Um, but uh, it's interesting. I had not thought about. It. I mean, we always talk about you know who's the beat down, who's the control. That's the uh, analogy the from Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think that. Um, Especially, you know, if you're a mob player, you, you, it's very rarely that you're not the, the mobile crew. Um, usually you're the mobile crew and the other one isn't. Um, but against Colette, um, you have to definitely reassess that situation. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, Emma, you uh, played uh, Daniel each and you had a solid uh, win with uh, scoring all eight points. Uh, Daniel scored five. Um, who did you bring to the matchup? Uh, I brought Dreamer. Um Sort of obviously, because <laughs> he's he's what I'm playing a lot of at the moment. Um, and Daniel was playing Molly. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, it, it was it's interesting. I've not really played against um, Molly very much actually. Um, so it was a good it was a good game to sort of play against her in sort of schemes and strats that she's quite good at because she's quite maneuverable with like the Krooligans and an Archie. So. Yeah, d- definitely. Now, uh, what schemes did you end up uh, picking, Emma? Um, I took Breakthrough and Search the Ruins. Um, so I know it was quite a scheme sort of heavy choice with that and trying to drop block, drop um, plant explosives. But I thought, because she's quite maneuverable, Take Prison is not really viable. And yep. I'm terrible at Diggy Graves anyway. So <laughs> just sort of avoided That's a tough those. Scheme. Yeah. So I, I guess to, for starters, Emma, as somebody, you know, had not played against Molly a lot, um, is there any kind of advice or learnings that you got from the game? So if someone out there is going to be playing Molly soon, things they should keep in mind or watch out for? Um, like how maneuverable like the Krooligans are and Archie, like because they can teleport on their quick action um, to another friendly. I think it's 
minion or enforcer or something like that across the board. Yeah, it's a by your side ability. That yeah. One. Yeah. Um, so I knew they could do that, but I just didn't sort of comprehend how how far that could get them or how yeah. fast. Um, so I think by the end of turn one, he had two Kruligrins and Archie over the center line, just, you know, ready to be a pain. <laughs> yep. Um, so definitely watch out, watch out for that. And if you can, kill the Kruligans. It's a re- yeah, uh, that's good advice. Um, it, it is really uh, the buyer side ability is one of those things that you read it and you go, okay, that makes sense to me. And then you see it on the board, you go, holy crap. Like, like <laughs> I, I knew you could do that, but to actually see you do it is a, is a lot different. Um, now, um, Emma, you play, I know, mostly Dreamer. Um, it, have you been just soloing Dreamer completely or is there some other uh, Neverborn Masters you've been uh, goofing around with? Um, I've been I've been messing around with Nakima a bit and I've got Pandora as well. Um, but I think I find Nakima a bit too aggressive <laughs> for my play style. I'm not very good yep. at just running up and attacking people. Um, I'm good at pretending to do that, but when it actually comes <laughs> to doing it, I'm not very good. I don't think I sort of bottle it and I only end up with like one or two attacks instead of like the full force of sort of a Nephilim crew at people. So right. yeah, I'm enjoying sort of the flexibility that Dreamer has to offer. Well, and you benefit from the fact, um, that you, I mean, at this point, Emma, you, I can't even imagine how many games of Dreamer you have under your belt, um, that affords you, uh, a lot of, uh, freedom to focus on the game because you, you've got the mechanics down at this point. Oh, yeah, def- definitely. I found that with whatever master I play, the more I play it, I, I sort of know what they're doing at the back of my brain and I can actually concentrate on how to win the game. It's like the several stages of Malifaux. It's learning what your crew does, learning what your opponent's crew does, and then learning how to actually do the game yep. and not just get your models in the right position. <laughs> No, I completely agree. Now, out of curiosity, Emma, because, um, you know, you play locally, you play in events. Um, it's not a secret that you're probably going to be playing Dreamer. Um, <laughs> are you finding, um, your opponents kind of teching against Dreamer? Um, because of that, do you feel like, uh, there's a potential drawback to the fact that, uh, they know what keyword you're going to bring? Um, I think. I think to some extent, yes, but not so much that it feels a bit mean or a bit unfun. Right. <laughs> like, I think it's making, it's, it's, I think it's the same decisions that you'd make when I declared Dreamer at the start of a game. They've just sort of already made those decisions prior to me actually declaring it. So I don't think they build a crew specifically to take down, you know, my set of seven or eight models, mm-hmm. but it's, I think it's the same sort of things that they do as soon as they get the chance to once we've declared faction and leader. Right. So yeah, it's not too bad. So, uh, based off of that, what, is there a particular matchup that um, that you really dislike? Is there another keyword out there that you're like, oh god, not this one? Um, uh, is there is there a, a hard counter out there for Dreamer? Um, I I don't know actually. Now you've asked me that, I hadn't <laughs> even thought about it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think. I don't know. And that's the the honest answer. Well, and there may um, not be, but I mean, based off of the game, I mean, can you think of a match recently where, uh, just, just the, the, you know, the basic mechanics of that keyword, um, really made it tough, tough for you? 
Um, I found playing against a dream recruiter in a match in a mirror matchup really hard, actually. <laughs> and, I, and it was so frustrating because I knew what he was going to do, right. and he did it anyway. And I was still surprised that it worked. <laughs> that was probably the most difficult one I played actually recently against another dreamer player. So Emma, if for the for the people out there trying to say that dreamers overpowered, it needs it needs some attention. You're not helping to counter that argument. <laughs> no, I'm not. To be honest, though, I have said, and I also said this through beta, there's certain mechanics on Dreamers crew that, that need altering. Yeah. And I think that still stands, definitely. Um, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't really help with that. It's <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it's a matter um, of being honest. Now, one of the main mechanics in the Molly crew is, uh, you know, that less caress. Um, I'd be curious to know um, how much of that impacted your decision making during the game. Uh, now you've said the name of that ability. I don't know what it is. That's, that's <laughs> the um. Uh, if you take uh, uh, if you declare the oh, same action the, a second time. Yeah. Um. So, so thank you for that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first couple of turns, it didn't matter too much because Molly was hidden behind the building. Uh huh. So actually, she didn't have line of sight to the vast majority of my crew. Um. And I take a lot of daydreams because they give free pushes. Mm-hmm. Um. So I find that I don't have to worry too much about double walking people um, because I can push people up with a daydream and then they can charge or they'll do a walk and a charge right. anyway. Um, and when I'm using like dreamers, dreamers summon abilities only once per turn anyway. And the sort of attack actions that my crew have, um, I sometimes want to be focusing to do them anyway yep. or doing other actions with them. So like um, Teddy's terrorize ability is so good. So sometimes I'm not actually doing, you know, two attacks with Teddy. I might be terrorizing somebody away and then charging in with him anyway. Right. Um, so I, d- I didn't find it too difficult. Um, but also, I think by the time Molly was a bit more up the board, um, there wasn't a lot else on the board of my opponent. So I was sort of just <laughs> not having to worry about it too much. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, it, what's funny about that ability is, um, I'll I'll talk to Molly players sometimes, and the, and they'll say, you know, less caress doesn't really matter that much. And what they don't realize is how often uh, the effect of less caress is invisible because you you don't see what the opponent didn't do um, and the choices they yeah. didn't make because of less caress. So, but it, um, when you wipe the whole crew off the board by the time Molly comes out, <laughs> Emma, I think it um, probably makes life a little bit easier. Um, but that was a real nice win. So, Tom, you had an all. Also a solid win. Uh, you scored all eight points um, and uh, you played uh, Vlad. And I'm going to get Vlad. I apologize. I'm going to get your last name wrong. Uh, uh, Jelly uh, is going to be my attempt. And I apologize. Uh, but 8-4 win. Um, so, Tom, uh, what crew did you bring? So I'm uh, exclusively playing Pandora at the moment, simply out of necessity in the sense that she's the, the Neverborn master that you can pretty much get everything for the keyword for that's right. available. Um, I do have longing eyes towards Nekima, but for now, Pandora's definitely doing the job. So coming into it, it was against Dashiell of the Guild and, um, coming into this whole event, it's, I'm, I'm under 10 games coming in. So everybody, every master's a new master to face against and, Summoning masters, I got very lucky that I'd played a friend who had a Kirai crew on the Wednesday before the event. So I'd had at least an opportunity to see what summoning did to an extent. Um, and what it did was absolutely terrify me. But coming yeah. into, uh, to Dashiell with the, the schemes, I should say that I took the, um, search the ruins because I just feel that's just one that I think everybody takes, especially there was a really good array of terrain in both of our halves. So we both ended up taking that one. 
and I went for the assassinate because, um, you know, if you're going with Neverborn, you probably want to try and take out their master. Mm-hmm. And, um, going in with your, your standard Pandora-ish crew, um, with Pandy Candy, Cade, Teddy, Poltergeist, Two Sorrows. And then essentially I'd been tossing up between Carver and Hinimatsu. And I'd had a whole day talking to a fellow like new player about the pros and cons of Carver. And he's all I had used. And then I made the decision to use Hinamatsu for the entire event. And as soon as the opponent declared, uh, Guild, Carver came straight back out. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. it was the focus ability. And, um, it was a really, really interesting game. I think one thing I had learned is that if you play the master, you don't really know. And there are summoning master, you're going to get past tokens very quickly. And mm-hmm. I think for the, for the first turn, I actively abused the ability to pass the turn. Um, so I'd activate something and then pass two, then activate again. And he had this really interesting lineup of a core anchor with Dashul and it's a Queeg and the dispatcher. And there's a guy who explodes when you kill him. There's all manner of like, uh, like troops. And then he had this yep. amazing flanking lineup of having two mounted guards of three guild hounds that had all the explosives on them. Oh, nice. So he had all these activations at the start where he's giving everybody focused, summoning things. And I was just passing just to try and get to some level of parity for the last activations of the turn. I think that's very much a guild ball mentality of trying to keep the activations equal. Yeah. And um, he was right across the center line with his flankers. And it was very, very interesting going into that first turn. And essentially I had a decision at the end of the first turn, which was um, what to do with Pandora. She had been lured up to get herself a little bit further forward. And it ended up being the the Hail Mary of the triple walk opened the box uh, to get within six inches of that anchor that he had at the backfield of his board. And I think that ended up swaying the game. Um, if it doesn't work, Pandora dies terribly. But if it does work and you can open the yeah. box, you can stun things. It wasn't so much as that, just to get the mood swings in place, which is her ability to dictate the activation order of the opponents. Um, with a summoning opponent, they're going to give you pass tokens. You can discard those instead of cards. So mm-hmm. Pandora was, was within six inches of that entire anchor and then essentially would, every time something in that anchor needed to activate, I would discard and make one of the flankers go so their activations were out of the way for later turns, meaning that your heavy hitters could then kill them. And Pandora's survivable enough to kind of hold on for two turns with the terrifying, with yep. she was in cover at the time, with her shockwave, with her opening the box and the misery. It was real kind of could have gone the other way if that wouldn't have worked as well as it did. So Tom, I, um, you know, when I found out uh, how well you did at this event, um, and I got Carl to kind of, uh, introduce us, um, it, what you, what you did uh, at this event is not common. Um, it's very rare that you'll see somebody do as well as you did, um, this early in your Malifaux career. So I'd be curious, um, about kind of the muscle memory that you have from other games. Um, obviously the fact that you, this Malfo is not your first tabletop game helped, but is there, is there something that you think has helped you either something from other games or another game in particular that, that um, maybe made the learning curve a little less steep in Malifo? Yeah, there's a definite, I think there's two major things that I could attribute that to. I'm usually very, very nervous going into organized play. And I think it comes from a, by no means are we a big channel on YouTube, but I think you might know this as well, Craig, that when you're associated with a product, Yep. Online, there's a little bit of scalping when you go to an event of, you know, if you can take out the YouTuber, it's, it's always a good thing. So I'm always a little bit nervy going into an event. And I've got to credit that maybe some of those games I've played previously, like Guild Ball, like Batman, that are highly positional based games. Pandora, I didn't really know what she did when I picked her up, but actually she turns out to be such a control master that I Mm -hmm. think positioning is key. 
the other thing I've got to credit is, like I said, my local meta is a little bit bizarre. Um, there's two henchmen. There's a Gilball national champion. There's a Batman consistent podium player. There are very, very friendly, but also very, very high level players. And I think we've been lucky that we've all taken different masters. So every game that I've had, the muscle memory has been not so much me finding out what the other masters do. It's kind of playing within my own game. And I think going into this event, not knowing what the other masters did, I knew roughly, as Emma said, I think the st- first stage of playing Malifaux is learning what your crew does. I was right. getting to the stage where I knew roughly, right, if I'm in this kind of area of the field, I'm going to put myself in an advantageous position. And I think the muscle memory of other games and positioning comes in. I think Pandora is all about the bubbles and you know the, the kind of ranges. And I think being able to eyeball that at the start of the battle really helps quite a lot. And I think it's there was no small amount of luck. I'm not going to claim that it was a huge sway of a battle. I think if if a couple of flips would have gone the other way, you would have seen Pandora die quite early in turn two or sure. turn three, and then things would have been terrible. But um yeah, it was it was, it was a really good battle. I think he he was fantastic in explaining to me uh, you know, I said at the start I'm kind of unknown, unknown what, what his crew did and he was fantastic in kind of saying, right, this'll do this. He I think he summoned is it an executioner, the one with the big claws. And it, I just went, oh, that thing's going to stab me badly, isn't it? And he kind of was like, yeah, that thing's going to really hurt. Um, but it was that, it, again, I, I think I said at the start, Pandora's fantastic for interacting with your player. You're doing so much during their activations, yeah. thanks to the Misery Aura. And they're doing so much in discussing with you when they want to put conditions, especially a guild player who wants to focus. But um, that kind of helped ease the stress that I had going in. And I think then you just find your rhythm. And I think... Turn two was both for scoring uh, our plant explosives, but turn three was then when I had my search the ruins and assassinate. And I think when you get up on the schemes, your opponent's playing catch up then. And I think you've essentially just got to try and minimize risk going forward in those subsequent turns. Now, Tom, was there something uh, truly unique to Malifaux that you think um – you know, the fact that you played other games may not have helped. So is it, was there, is there an aspect of Malifaux for somebody out there who is either, you know, comes from a lot of other games that that you found particularly challenging or so unique that you really had to kind of start from scratch and learning? The one thing I really struggled with was actually the schemes. So the strategy, I found myself in my first five or six games, it was only the last couple before going to the event of me starting to play the schemes more than just the strat. And I still have games now, I've played one since where, I lean too heavily on the main strats, especially something like idols, where it's like, right, that's the thing I need to focus on. And I think what is something that a new player needs to kind of get their head around is those schemes, like I said, if you can get up on them, sometimes it's okay to not score the strat each turn if you've got your schemes in place to get you the points in future ones. Yeah. So Emma, you, you kind of laid out kind of the three uh, phases of, of Malifaux, which I think were completely accurate. Um, where do you think what Tom is talking about falls into that? Like, when do you think you really, I mean, we know it's kind of stage three, right? When you actually start playing the game. Um, yeah. but, but for you, either when you're bringing in a new crew, um, like you're doing with Nekama or if going back in time, five or six years, like when do you think a player should really start, um, kind of flexing and and paying attention to the schemes themselves? Um, I, th- I think actually it, they're just as important as the strategy, mm-hmm. um, especially coming from M2E where they were worth more points than the strategy. So I think it's ingrained in me because you used to be able to score, you know, um, three, three and four, didn't you? Three for each scheme right. and then four for the strategy because it was a 10 point game. So for me, it's always been the focus has actually been more on the schemes 
Um, because also I feel like they're things there where you don't necessarily have to involve your opponent as much. Yep. So the strategy is sometimes contested or it's something that you're both trying to do. Um, but while you're trying to develop yourself, if you focus on the schemes, that's, it's, it's sort of like playing the game with yourself. It's something that you can do and have control over, um, which scores you points um, with limited sort of, hopefully anyway, um, denial from your opponent. Because mm-hmm. I think denialing of schemes is something that comes way later in sort of competitive or well-rounded play. Um, so I find when you're in that mid stage, you tend to all score a lot of points because you're all doing your schemes and the strat. And then after you've learned how to do that, you then learn to go back in and deny your opponent while you're at it. So getting the scheme, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit here. <laughs> That's okay. No, this is good. Um, so I think if you can get your, um, yeah, if you can learn to do your schemes early on, you're also then aware of what your opponent's going to be trying to do as well, yep. eventually. Um, and then once they're solid in their sort of almost muscle memory of this is how I get my schemes, right, they're done and boxed off early. Like what um, Tom said, you know, you're not having to play catch up and then Mm -hmm. you've got that sort of window to try and deny your opponent instead. Yeah, definitely. James, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I I, I jump off from from both the points there. I I think where you then become, where you then start to get to really is the, um, the, you know, sort of a view of, okay, well, having... Um, having sort of got, got a sense of, okay, now I'm going to do my schemes, now I'm going to do my strategy. It then becomes about, you, you get better at evaluating, um, where, you know, where is the diff coming from, um, mm-hmm. in this objective set? Where is the, you know, where, where do I feel that the, um, this, the diff at the end of the game is going to come from? And that, that for me then becomes the next stage. Okay. I know how to go all, do all these things. I know how to deny these against my opponent and then choosing your battles um, and getting mm-hmm. yeah. learning to choose your battles, um, you know, which points you're going to fight for and which points you're not going to fight for becomes the, the kind of the crucial thing. Yeah, that that is definitely some second level play, um, James, because uh, you're 100 percent right. And I, and I like uh, to build off of what Emma said, um, you know, those different phases and, you know, uh, learning to score and not to score. But the one thing I'd be curious to know, James, um, because like Emma, you played a lot in M2E as well, that transition in uh, the scoring system. So and in, in for those of you that didn't play in second edition, second edition, uh, as Emma mentioned, was 10 points. Uh, you had two schemes that you would pick that you could score up to three points on each and then you could score four points on the strat and then they shaved off down to eight points for three um how big of a change do you think that was james it's interesting i mean i I certainly think it changes it changes the balance of the game now i I played from first edition and first edition worked the same way as it does now broadly Um, it was eight points broken down the same way so how much difference does it make i I think what it does it puts the emphasis back on back on the strategy to a certain extent. I think probably the bigger change for me is the difference between scoring. Um, in M2E, you could score all of the points during the game, whereas the, yep. it's having every scheme have an end end of game scoring element now. I think that probably puts more focus, and that's probably a bigger change than, than the point breakdown for me. I um, agree. Because it, it locks a lot of your points to the end of the game. But yeah, other people will have uh, other views. No, I agree with you, James. Force if, if unlike in two E, there is a there is a particular time that at least two points are going to get scored or not scored, and that having that time pinned, um, it changes things. Um, and it changes. Uh, I think 
everything from crew building down to how you play the game. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about round two. We'll be right back. Hi, guys and girls, ladies and gents. I'm Kevin Smith. I'm the Southwest boy living in the southeast of the UK. I contribute $18 or £13 a month to Third Floor Wars. And why? Well, I work 50 hours a week as a supermarket manager, have three children, so in my spare time, I just want to play foe. And if I can't do that, the next best thing is listening to the Third Floor Wars podcast. Not only do I hear about what I play and the gaps in my knowledge, but I also hear about all of the cruising tactics that I need to beat and often how they've even performed in recent tournament reports. The online store has some great merchandise, including t-shirts and mugs to buy now to show your support. You should be a Patreon too. So pause this episode and go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or grab the link in the show notes. So how much are three or four of these episodes worth to you a month? Third Floor Wars has a Patreon, and if you think they're worth a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars a month, swing by and become a patron. We have polls to decide the next episode of the pod, along with early releases of articles and podcasts. Everything we release goes out to everyone, but sometimes our patrons get a head start. The link is in the show notes, or just search for Third Floor Wars on Patreon.com. Thanks for the support. Special shout out to some of our newest patrons, Brian Bauer, Emil, James Doxey, Luke Athico, Shay Wallace, Michael Roper, Andre and LaShawn Allen. Thanks to you and everybody else that helps support us. So we go into round two. Each of you guys obviously have a win under your belt now. Um, James's uh, diff is not as quite as high as Emma and Tom's. Um, the deployment is wedge. We've got uh, turf war. The schemes were power ritual, outflank, claim jump, hold up their forces, and vendetta. So Emma, we know that you brought Dreamer, um, mm-hmm. and you got another impressive win um, this time against uh, Ali Whitfield. Um, uh, what did Ali bring? Um, Ali was playing Colette. Yeah, she had, she had Colette and a Corfrey duet and some other performery type models. Yeah. And, <laughs> and did, did you find Colette to be a challenge? Um, I think, no. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's because I deliberately didn't take anything that involved scheme markers. Right. Um, I took outflank and hold up their forces. So, because I know Colette can um, sort of, very easily, as as um, James was saying, you know, deny scheme markers by picking yeah. them up or um, bury you and pop you out near a scheme marker that you put on the board. So I deliberately didn't take anything that would sort of allow her to get up and running with that. Um, yeah, some, so sometimes I, countering a crew is just a matter of picking the right schemes. Yeah, so I found that um, I think also Ali had an unfortunate pick with one of her schemes that I didn't mean, I didn't notice or realize I'd done it. Um, and I accidentally denied her two points by killing a model. Um, so she had, um, claim jump on a Corfrey duet and I ah. killed the Corfrey duet turn two. So it wasn't, I didn't realize sort of how far ahead I was by the right. end of turn two. Right. Cause that, that had not been declared. And that was, yeah. yeah, that, that was a roll of the dice, uh, pick, um, on Allie's part because, you know, you're going to want that duet in the middle of things. The duet's going to be, uh, uh, be a threat, which makes it the duet a target priority. And to yeah. use that for the claim jump is, um, is taking some chances. That's for sure. Yeah. Very much. So. And, and I think I've got three models in my crew that ignore armor. Yeah. 
and go and shoot against willpower. So defense seven, but I didn't really mind that because I could target the willpower, ignoring the armor. So I didn't really struggle with the Corfrey duet at all, actually. <laughs> we're we're going to hear all kinds of chatter at the end of the, when this episode comes out, Emma, about how good Dreamer is. <laughs> well, I'm so, also a good player. It's not just I Dreamer. Agree. I agree. Well, so out of curiosity, though, um, yeah. what do you think? What do you think is the most challenging thing about being a Dreamer player? So, um, what makes playing Dreamer hard? Um, uh, so somebody who's thinking of taking Dreamer on, um, what is, where's a place where they're going to have to struggle and definitely get their, uh, games in? Um, I think because he can do so much stuff. It's the same issues I had when I used to play Sandeep. Um, he's really quite flexible, but yeah. I think as, as a byproduct of that, you can mess it up quite easily. Like if you spend a turn where you put Dreamer slightly out of position, not within two inches of a friendly nightmare model, he'll die yep. because you've put him, you know, you've been a bit of a turnip and ran him up the board and he's not protected anymore. So you've got to just be really mindful of all the little components that work together. If one of them sort of clicks out of place, it can go downhill quite quickly. Like if you do a wrong summon in the wrong place, because when um, somebody fails a willpower, you don't have to bring a model out that's buried. Mm-hmm. You can choose to. But sometimes when I start, I was like, oh, quick, a willpower has been failed. Pop them off, like get the stitched on the board. And it'd be like on the flank, nowhere right. near anybody that I needed it to be. So it's trying to be mindful of when you want these things to actually happen. And sometimes reining yourself in from getting excited and being like, actually, no, I want this model over there. I'm going to wait and pop it out somewhere else instead. So yep. I think that's probably the biggest challenge, not not just getting carried away with how much stuff you can do, because you'll go through the whole game and be like, yeah, I've summoned this, I've done this, I've done this. Oh, and I've not scored any of my schemes because yeah, I've I been too carried away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the hardest thing about being a dreamer player is finding the box, giving it as an out yet, but uh, that could be made. <laughs> Uh, that's that's true, and it's actually uh um you know t- it, I think Tom said it without re- you know realizing it um the implications of it, but it's it's got to be a challenge, Tom, being a new player. Um, it's really hard at the moment. Yeah, yeah, stuff is just not available. Um, and even for people that you know had all of their models in two E, there's a lot of there's a lot of keywords out there that um have unreleased models that you know are new to third edition and you you almost can't play the keyword a lot of them are in guild you almost can't play the keyword without um either having those models or proxying them so i'm anxious um for for more product to hit the shelves it's easy to get 30 soul stones at the moment i think getting up to the 50s where the real yeah. challenge is their their release schedule is logical from one sense but from another sense it's that well, I need this box of things or I need several. And like I said, I've, uh, there's a solitary tear running down my cheek as I think of Nekima, but you know, she's definitely mm-hmm. one of those that needs her totem and Hayrid and I believe yep. has changed factions, hasn't he? Um, yeah. So it's just waiting, just waiting game, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We, but we can be spoiled and we can bitch about it now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, you had a, a good game, uh, against uh, a buddy of mine, Dan, uh, Dan Brown. He's a fellow Rezzer player and you won five, three. Um, uh, you brought Pandora obviously, but what did Dan bring? Uh, this was a fantastic game. I've got to credit Dan massively for this. He, this was me realizing how elite this kind of top level kind of play was because not only did he give me his app code which said round two on it so he'd obviously like bespoke listed it uh he had a very interesting elite crew he had von stuck from the rezzers uh he had the research assistant the valedictorian an undergrad archie and the dead rider with 10 soul stones to spare so he wow. was really looking for 
stoning damage, getting the suits he wanted with the dead rider rather than just waiting for the tokens, using what he needed with it. And, you know, he very kindly, again, did, as did all my opponents, taught me through Von Stuck. And the only thing that registered mm-hmm. in my head was he ignores stunned. And then yeah. Archie ignores stunned. So as a Pandora play, you just kind of like roll your eyes and go, okay, then what are we going to do? So, um, he, like I said, he went with this very elite, heavy hitting crew. And it's at this point that I kind of made the decision to switch Carver for Hinamatsu. Um, mm-hmm. as I was going for outflank and claim jump very similarly. Um, and I think Hinamatsu is fantastic for outflank because her ability to charge and get the extra two inches means she can bounce up to the wing, score it, and then get back into combat for the next turn and then bounce back for turn five. Yep. It's, it's real maneuverability. And it, it came down to a very early activation where in turn one, Archie barreled down the middle of the, the field <clears throat> looking to threaten, try and get power ritual. I think he had taken kind of get into the backfield. And it, it was a couple of good damage flips from Teddy that basically took him off the board. And yeah. then, then as soon as you get up on heavy hitters, I think, I think things start to sway a little bit. And that's the valedictorian is a terrifying model. Uh, to deal with and I think it's it's such a heavy hitter but again I had a few decent damage flips with Pandora on her self-loathing so she used the attack profile against her and I think I got a severe damage flip on my first one and wow. that swayed things I think I knocked the Valedictorian down to one HP and I think Von Stucken managed to bring out a Necropunk or something during this but I think there was a couple running around that weren't particularly happy and the Dead Rider got stodged up as well and I think I, it was a case of we both had quite elite crews, but it was a uh, baby Cade is usually useless for me, but he managed to hold up the dead rider and annoy it because he's got the stat seven law. Yep. So it was the, and the, the misery ability to push someone two inches. So I kept pushing the dead rider away from the outflank, away from the three inches of the, the wing. And it was that kind of element of denial that was coming into the battle. The actual, um, power ritual side of his i was struggling to stop because with the leaps they're just so quick but yeah turf war you can mess with people using that two inch push quite a lot um taking um taking uh, out flank against a pandora crew is tough because you have a ton of ways to to move your opponent's models definitely and i think the the claim jump is a really nice one with pandora to take as well um as i'll probably say in round three as well i took it on teddy and Teddy with the, with Cade has the ability to consistently heal, yep. do a fair bit of damage with his two inch melee and again get back towards the center line. So it, it, it tends to be a guaranteed point at least having it on Teddy, at least going forward. Yeah. Out of curiosity, Tom, um, because claim jump is a little tough, right? Because if you, if you declare the first point too early, um, you're giving your, <laughs> yeah, you're giving your opponent a ton of time to try to deny the second point. Um, when did, do you remember in, uh, which round you, uh, de- uh, ended up declaring the first point for claim jump on Teddy? Yep. I'm just having a look here. I think it was turn four. I declared it okay. very late. It's traditionally three or four that it pops out. Um, the only time yep. that didn't happen was in round three. And I'll talk about that a little bit later because that's kind of rush and get the point on the board. But got it. The, it comes out late because. I think Teddy's one that people are very much, I think Emma hinted towards it. Your master might have abilities sometimes that you don't think are doing well or your characters do, but actually the opponent's thinking a lot about it. I came out of this mm-hmm. event thinking Pandora didn't do much, but I didn't think about all the annoyances she might have been causing. And I think Teddy's one of those that people are very aware of. What is his eight inch threat range? I believe it is. 
of, oh my God, this thing's going to come in, it's going to flurry, it's going to hurt me. So when you hold it around the center zone and it's threatening a good chunk of the board, you can just sometimes then go, oh, I'm just going to hold off and score the claim jump. Um, something about, I think Teddy is one of the most sort of underrated models. <laughs> Not underrated, that's wrong. Um, he's such a good model. He was like MVP in all of my games because I took him in every single one of mine. Um, and he does pack an absolute punch. And people are terrified of him. Um, you see this giant teddy bear running at your face for whatever, sorry, like charging up the board. Um, and, and Tom's right. Like he, he's one of those models where if you think you're not doing very well, look at what Teddy's done that game. Mm-hmm. He's probably killed at least a couple of things. And, you know, he can eat other models to heal himself. So even if you don't have healing from other members of your crew, you can keep him alive quite reliably. Um, cause he also heals on, um, his attack when he kills stuff as well. He's got his regen um, as well, which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I am a bit surprised you took claim jump on him, to be honest. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely something that's developed for a little while. I think it's because Baby Cade, with his Where's Teddy ability, moves Teddy towards Cade. They both heal too, and then you can place. So I think if you overextend Teddy, you can pull him back, give him the healing that he needs. And it's, it's, it's interesting because I think it might be different between a dreamer crew. I'd be interested to know, Emma, does Teddy tend to be in the opponent's backfield at the end of the game? So I always find with Pandora, he's hunting a wing usually. Um, Teddy is just somewhere unreliable, I found. <laughs> He'll pick a model and go off after it. Um, so I couldn't ever sort of guarantee I'd want to keep him in the center of yeah. the board. So that's where I was a bit like, oh, you took it on Teddy. But if you can bring him back with Cade, that makes more sense. Because yep. if my Teddy runs off up the board, he's going to kill something. But then getting him back to the center to score that point, it's probably quite quite difficult for me, actually, because he's off hunting somebody. <laughs> you should never underestimate how annoying sorrows are for the opponents as well. I think they <laughs> so, are phenomenal so much. They are so, so good. annoying. Yeah. Um, you know, you just plonk them within four inches. You don't even have to attack something and just go, I'm just going to keep leeching health off you yeah. and, and healing. And I think they tend to be my flankers and then I'll have left and right of center will be Teddy and the other one will be either Hinamatsu or Carver. And then you've got Pandora, Candy, Poltergeist, Cade kind of in the middle. Um, so you can tuck in where you need to. It sounds like some sort of really intense football formation. It's not, <laughs> um, but there is a lot of movement shenanigans to get Teddy where you need him to be, yeah. which I think may be, a pe- be to Pandora's advantage. James, out of curiosity, in your faction, is, is there a model that kind of fits uh, a little bit of what uh, Tom and Emma are talking about? So a model that, you know, at, at first glance, at the end of the match, you might say, well, this model was garbage. You didn't do anything, but in reality had a huge impact on the, on what your opponent did or didn't do. Um, I mean, I could probably point to Amina, um, her prevention of charge aura, um, can probably fall into that category. Um, yeah. I think, um, I'll probably used correctly. I'd actually point to the magical training upgrade, um, and the counter spell it gives. Um, right. and some of that, that, some of those sort of, uh, of elements. But, um, there are plenty of models that, that sort of, if, if, you know, can look like they're underutilized. That's certainly a thing that can happen. Um, mm-hmm. so probably, uh, that's probably, um, but yeah, I would struggle to point to one in, in, in exactly, uh, in exactly those terms. Gotcha. I'd be interested to ask because the two more experienced players with, um, Turf War, it's a really interesting, strat that how much do you actually assault the opponent's the opponent's half turf markers because you you know you can protect yours quite well and the center one's quite key but how much do you go for those ones that are in your opponent's side because i always struggle with the 
do I need to commit really far forward? Is it dependent on the crews? So, I mean, I, from my, my perspective, I think, I think Turf War is probably the most inter- interesting strategy in the current set um, because you can approach it in so many different ways. Um, you can do everything from, uh, you know, you can go for the full-on um, assault through to a more subtle, schemey plan, trying to kind of skirmish round and sneak marker, you know, sneak markers in late with things like Don't Mind Me. I tend to go for the secure one of my home quarters early, evacuate from that towards my opponent's um, half so that any kills, so that the fight is happening on my opponent's half of the board. Um, but some of that's predicated on how fast the opponent is. Um, so I, I tend, I tend, do tend to try and push into my opponent's half, but there are so many different ways to approach turf war is, is one of the, I think it's probably the most interesting of the, uh, the current set of strategies for that reason. Yeah, I, I'd agree with James on that. It's re- it's really interesting because there's so many different ways you can tackle it. I tend to flip both of mine and then go straight into my opponent's half, completely ignore the middle one because if anybody dies anywhere, that flips back. So I feel like that's wasted AP to flip that over early and I use that late game if I just need to tick another one over. Um, and often if I, f- I find if I charge into my opponent's half, although I've left two unprotected, they're probably not getting reliably past me to go and flip those over and I'm not in that half anyway for them to kill things so if you can just I find if I just push and keep going onto my opponent's half it tends to just be a bit of a slide and I don't have to worry about the first two and then I can deny them and take theirs as well that's really interesting with the masters I think from Pandora's perspective you try and you almost want to get into the middle of the boards that one that's in the middle like you said, you don't necessarily flip it, but if you can sit there and with the 10 inch kind of self-loathing range, you can then push into your opponent's half and kind of attack. So it's definitely an interesting decision. And, you know, when I saw Von Stuck and that super elite crew, I was kind of worried about them killing me in my own half and those markers getting flipped very quickly and like dropping those points. You can also, I think, from my perspective, you can getting getting to that center marker because you can threaten to flip it late. It gives you a lot more control. Yeah. Um, the risk around that center marker being anyone dies anywhere, it's turned off. So it's a it's a great one to threaten. Um, and I, I think from this objective set, um, this is a really tricky objective set. Looking at the uh, the scheme pool deployment combination, um, I think it's probably the toughest round of the day. So, and I think claim jump which isn't a, a strategy, oh, sorry, scheme I normally rate, actually is probably pretty high up the priority list in this pool, probably meant the center marker is more relevant in this version, this game, than, than it would be in the average game of, uh, of Turf War, I think. You can fake it out, can't you? You can pretend that you're going towards that center marker and then declare your claim jump late mm-hmm. on, and they might just think the model's there to flip that marker. You can do. There's all sorts of... This is, this is a strategy... Sorry, this, this is a round where I think actually players had to take a lot of risks... Yep. Um, in order to kind of get, um, you know, to get into the game here. Um, and I think that, that in itself was quite, in, is quite an interesting, uh, yeah, quite an interesting element is, you know, players have got to, to really take some risks in this game. Um, you know, because Vendetta and Clenjup, I think, are the easiest, but also the easiest to get accidentally, uh, locked out of to Emma's point, um, you know, in her game versus Ali. So James, um, you had uh, a shutout game. You won four zero against uh, Aaron Bowie. Um, can you go walk us through that match? 
Yeah, so Aaron is a new player, um, and a new player with Dreamer. Um, and I'd already decided I was taking Hoffman into this game. So I was, I was quite pleased. I think Hoffman has a really nice match, um, against Dreamer. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to see if Emma feels the same way. Um, but I'm, I'm really a fan of Hoffman in that matchup. Um, I've not actually played against Hoffman with my Dreamer crew, so have no idea. Maybe I can shut up now <laughs> and not give you any tips. <laughs> 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 I think Dreamer struggles with the anti-armor, despite the fact a lot of his, his crew have a, have a kind of a ranger tank that ignores armor. Um, and I, I think part of the struggle there is that they, although they, they ignore armor on a lot of stuff, they, that, that attack has not got very high damage output and is very easily healed back by the Hoffman crew. Plus, mm-hmm. with Hoffman picking up the, um, with Hoffman picking up potentially the anti-armor, uh, sorry, you know, the, the no ignores armor. And the diesel engine aura to prevent, um, you know, to prevent damage. It can create quite a nice, um, yeah, quite a nice, quite a challenging sort of setup for an opponent as to sort of, okay, what, what do I want to do in this? Um, how do I want to, how do I want to go about it? Cause it is quite a challenging or can quite easily be quite a challenging, um, you know, thing to sort of attack. Well, I don't want to go in with the melee attacks, but the range attacks are on negatives. Um, if I do attack, I'll, I'll heal back. So it's, you know, and it, it's quite, I think it can be quite a tough one for Hoffman to face. In, in the game against Aaron, what became quite apparent quite early is th- the game was going to revolve around, um, the Guardian. So I'd taken claim jump on my Guardian. Um, and it became reasonably apparent early on that the Guardian was important to his, his objectives because he'd taken Vendetta on it. Oh, um, wow. So, so there was a huge kind of four, very early on, there was a four point swing on whether or not this guardian lived, um, and stayed above half wounds and quite practiced in this matchup. Guardian's quite good for claim jump because he's got a, a one action that just pushes all the enemy away from him, um, with no resist. So it's very good for going, actually, I'm just going to, I'm just going to push you away. Um, so all of that was, was pretty helpful and got us into a good space. You know, it was just able to get into a good space with those trades. Um, keep the guardian healthy enough um, and control the markers and sort of possibly then had to overinvest into the center, which let me get around the outsides to, uh, um, to, to get control of claim jump. And that, and that was all she wrote really. So James, I, I, like how did he not score a point on turn two? Did you deny that for turf war? Um, uh, I denied, yeah, I denied turf war on turn two. Um, I say he was a relatively new player and I don't want to, um, you know, yeah, re- relatively new player, um, really good bloke, but we, we, it was a relatively slow game. I think we got only a few activations into turn three. Got um, it. So you're looking at a score that, that sort of is reflective of, of a relatively short game. Yeah, it, it's tough. And it, um, not everybody can be Tom, which is a podium at your first event. Um, but uh, it, um, it it's really... I'm retired now. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's, 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 it's a, it, I mean, I, obviously I love Malifaux. Um, but, uh, it, um, it, it's challenging when you, when you get started. And, you know, Tom, you called it out that, um, you know, learning, learning how the scoring system works. Um, it's not, it, it is far more intricate and subtle than any other system out there. Um, which is part of, I think, why the game, is as good as it is. Um, but as a new player, that's a challenge. Um, but yeah, a shot, usually when you see a shutout like that, it's, it's usually only the game only went a few turns or, uh, someone just scooped, um, and said, I'm, you know, I'm done. You win. <laughs> but, uh, it sounds like it was more just, um, the challenge of, you know, getting, getting all the mechanics down for, uh, for Aaron as a new player. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, good bloke um, and an enjoyable game nonetheless. Good. Good. So you didn't crush his spirit, James? Uh, yeah, I think that's something you would have to ask Aaron. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So guys, let's take a quick, <laughs> let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the final round, um, and, uh, really see how, uh, Emma ended up winning. Uh, James got second and Tom got third. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. With 3rd Edition Malifaux released, it's time for you to get a new mat with new deployment zones. We've tried every mat in the business and nobody has better quality and selection than Mats by Mars. They're waterproof and they roll and unroll easily and they're even wet erase Marco compatible. They offer over 35 designs and let you add M3E overlays for making deployment and positioning a breeze. Check them out at matsbymars.com. They are offering a sweet discount for our listeners. After you found the perfect mat, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get 10% off your entire order. If you really want to support us in the notes of your order, request that our logo be put in the corner of your mat. It's the only way to make the best mat in the business even cooler. Again, that's Matt by Mars. Use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. All right, so final round, we've got uh, Emma um, is sitting in second place, uh, Tom is in fourth, and James is in sixth, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, each of you guys were, you know, quote unquote, the underdogs coming into this match. Uh, you guys were all uh, 2-0, and you all have more than 10 points of diff. And, you know, it's a little tough with, uh, f- you know, 40 people um, and only three rounds. Um, I mean, diff is going to decide it because you're going to end up with a lot of people um, that end up 3-0 and just because you don't have enough rounds to to, to kind of whittle everybody down. Um, and there were some really strong matchups um, here at the top table. So I don't think anybody can say that you guys didn't um, play some quality opponents. But let's talk about the pool real quick. Um, you've got uh, flank deployment. It's reckoning with search the ruins, harness the ley line, detonate the charges, deliver a message, and claim jump. Uh, now, Tom, you played uh, uh, Roddick Rye, who's... Um, uh, you know, I've never had him on the show, but we, he's come up in conversations. Um, and at some point we need to get him on the show. Uh, can you kind of walk us through what happened there? Yeah. Radix, a, a player that I'm sure James and Emma will be very familiar with. Very, very, very respectable player. Fantastic. Uh, really nice to play against as well. Um, I'm sure Emma will echo it. As soon as you see reckoning as the strat, I think as the Neverborn player, your eyes kind of light up a little bit and think, right, this is something I can, I can get going. But actually it was, a uh, a really interesting game that it didn't really go that way. So I was against a Parker Barrows crew that was again quite bespoke. It was uh, Dot Mitchell, a prospector, a scavenger, Mad Dog with the Dark Powers upgrade and Hands and the Emissary. So there was a lot of healing and a lot of bubbles within this kind of very shooty, nasty mm-hmm. crew. Um, and I kind of went into it thinking that I needed to go with easily scorable options so again i went with the claim jump on teddy because it worked in the last round so why wouldn't it work in this one <laughs> he thought foolishly um and i went with the search the ruins because again i think that's the ubiquitous one you can go with and um there was a very very interesting interaction early on i, I got into the habit as a new player of kind of repeating things at the start of battles and i need to get out of the habit and the thing that i often repeat at the start is baby Cade will go mm-hmm. forward He'll lure Pandora, he'll cry for Teddy, and you get this nice little cluster that's five inches further up the, the field. Not so good when Mad Dog has a shotgun <laughs> yeah, that can blast. Yeah. Um, so Radic ran down, and by this point, the poltergeist had walked up as well. So I had four models huddled behind a building, 
Um, and the Mad Dog walked forward, and it was the strength of the cards in my hand saved me. I had the Red Joker and two thirteens. So as he was shooting at me, I was able to kind of get away with it. But that could have gone the other way. Lamented, yeah, he lamented afterwards that his cards weren't particularly great, and I think we can both admit that if it had been the other way around, that would have been half my crew on half their yeah. health. Um, however, that swayed things a little bit. Pandora then walked up to Mad Dog and had him shoot himself essentially a couple of times, which he didn't appreciate. Um, and Hinamatsu subbed in again for me instead of Carver, and Hinamatsu got very quickly into Hans's face mm-hmm. to kind of shut down that shooting. I'd encountered Hans once before in a levy list and did not appreciate the shooting either. Um, but it was really, really interesting that actually I was going in thinking I was going to be scoring reckoning. I only scored one reckoning point and that was on the last turn. Wow. Um, because of the emissary, because of the doctor, I was, and the, the nature of who I was fighting, I had a lot of his models getting chipped down, but it wasn't ticking them down to death. I was trying to put enough threat on Parker that he was needing to spend actions and stones to deal with him. But the ability of having a prospector at the back yep. to get the soul stone every turn is just so valuable. And, um, he was kind of looking towards, uh, search the ruins as well. And there was that a little bit of toing and froing with him having the prospector as the scavenger. He could mess with my putting down scheme markers. Um, so it was very much a, a very tight game. So Tom, you hinted that, uh, things went different with Teddy claim jump. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So I kind of did like a false charge essentially. Teddy went down the wing to begin with and, uh, was threatening early and looking at how the points were going and looking at what Mad Dog did to me on the first turn, I kind of ran him back towards the center to get the claim jump on, uh, I think it was turn three by my notes. It's at that point Radic's attention very quickly turned to, I'm going to wipe that bear off the board. Um, and a lot of firepower then went towards Teddy and there was a lot of focus on killing him. Now, it was an interesting thing because it completely changed the the battle in the sense that the focus just became very heavily on Teddy to take him out. And I think, as I mentioned to Emma earlier on, Cade being able to kind of heal Teddy and Candy being able to heal Teddy, it became very much, rather than us playing Reckoning, it was, can Teddy stay alive? Yeah. Um, and that's what got me the last point, but it was so foolish of me to maybe declare that early. And rather than just doing that, I could have had Teddy kind of hang out near the middle, as I said. He was threatening enough to look like he might want to charge, declare it far near the end. I think Radic then might have spread his focus on Pandora and the Sorrows, whereas in reality he was kind of ignoring them, making me drop scheme markers so he could draw cards, getting the stones off the prospect and just pouring damage into my Teddy. And I think it was Teddy, Teddy ended up, I think, with just about half health, just over half health, thanks to Candy healing him with her goodie basket. Well, what's crazy about that though, um, and it didn't play out this way, but it could have, is let's say that uh, he took you know, Teddy below half, or he was able to take Teddy off the board and deny that second point. What's interesting, and you hinted at it, Tom, is that he p- had to spend so many resources to, I mean, he poured so much into that, that it allowed you s- the ability to score elsewhere. Um, and you have to, I mean, you've got to figure that out sometimes. Sometimes you can get so focused on trying to deny or score one point that you don't realize that you're giving up or allowing two or three points somewhere else. Um, so that's fascinating. I think that's key. And I think if you, if you can do big damage to an opponent's heavy hitter and they have to retreat that heavy hitter, that's a lot of action points wasted. Yep. So Mad Dog spent the rest of the game running to the backfield to get into a new position for shooting that was outside of 10 inches of Pandora and Candy. 
And I think if you take that away, it's similar in the valedictorian in the previous game, then suddenly that's AP not going into reducing your health pools, which in a reckoning game is obviously going to be an attractive option. Yep. Yep. So what, uh, what was the final score? Uh, it was four three in the end. Wow. We got to the the fifth turn starting, and I just turned to him and I went, "I'm just going to shake your hand now because whichever way this goes, it's kind of it's going to be bad on one of us and great on the other." <laughs> and um, it like I said, it was the last reckoning point. I think I was able to kill. Um, it might have even been Mad Dog, and essentially that got me the reckoning point I needed to tick over. It was one of those ones that I think, as Emma hinted at, I was focusing more on the schemes, and then the strat came in to kind of win the game. So it was very much a a showpiece finale, shall we say. And it, he was a fantastic opponent. He was incredibly forthcoming with information about Parker and what he was aiming to do with him because, you know, you see the Parker model, it's a guy with a gun, but the dropping of the scheme markers is yeah. incredibly thematic and fun to play against, but it's not when you're trying to score Search the Ruins. <laughs> right. Uh, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's really obnoxious when you go for that. Yeah. Um, I would say that the the thing that really interested me was the emissary. The emissary is a fan, like a fascinating model in, in outcasts with the, the sheer utility yeah. of what he can bring to the crew. And he had, he had a very, very versatile crew. I mean, the scavenger is fantastic with that as well. Um, whereas I was very much one track mind of, right, I'm going to try and put as much damage on the leader as I can to then open up avenues for other attacks. Yeah, outcasts are good, man, in this edition. Um, they, I think they struggled a little bit uh, in, in 2E, but um, they've got a lot of strength. And uh, uh, I've played against a good Parker player more than once, and Parker can be just brutal. I think they just have a decent answer to a lot of questions. I mean, Emma was saying about Dreamer, and within the Neverborn, I think I'd be terrified if Tara came out against Dreamer um, with her ability to kind of, you know, attack buried models. And I think, you know, Levy is, is is powerhouse as well. They're a really attractive faction. I think if I was a new, I am a new player, but if I was a brand new player, I think you, you could do worse than starting with the outcasts because I think you've got such a variety of specialists, but yep. their versatile models allow to make up, you know, good ground. Uh, I, I completely agree. So James, uh, you played uh, David Cameron. Um, can you walk us through what happened there? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, David was in Neverborn, um, and, and was, uh, sorry, was in Bayou. I don't know where I got that from. Um, and was playing, um, was playing Zerada. So David, again, I think he's a, a, a relatively new player, um, in from Guild Ball. Um, so again, a bit of a theme running through the day. Um, it was, yeah, he, so he, she'd chosen to take Zerada into Reckoning, which initially kind of threw me. Yeah. Um, now I've been playing a, a kind of against a bay and against Zerada since first edition. So I'm kind of used to how you would play around a bay. So I think his thinking was it was a fairly mobile list and it was a fairly scheme heavy pool. So I think his thinking was a la bay. My opponents have a hitters to hit each other while my Salurids run around and, and score schemes. Um, now, this, this objective set screams Keris, um, and I wasn't so on play new stuff, um, as a plan, <laughs> um, that I wasn't going to take this sort of gift, or especially on table three in the, in the final round. So I had chosen to take Keris, which was, you know, which was a pretty good matchup for me. Um, Keris can hunt Salurids down. Um, the crew in general is very mobile and, yeah. and you've got four models native that can delete scheme markers at range. Um, and it turns out catfish do not enjoy being on fire. Um, <laughs> who knew? So, um, it was, it was, I was able to, to sort of, to get ahead fairly, uh, to get ahead fairly handily. Um, and before the end, I, 
you know, I was able to, to educate David in the, um, um, in the hazardous terrain rules, um, as he encountered many a pyre, but, um, it was, you know, it, it was a good game and David, David played, you know, fairly solidly. I just think he had the wrong, um, the wrong crew on the table for the objective set. Um, and that is not a pool I'd want to fight Keris in. Um, there's a lot of, you know, that, that, that's pretty much optimum conditions for Keris that, uh, that pool. So, um, it's easy to get up fairly handily on that one. What was the final score? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that, um, and <laughs> I didn't have that to hand, um, which is unprofessional of me. Um, uh, I got up 6-3. Okay, good, 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 good. So, Amma, you had quite the matchup. Um, you're going up against somebody you're familiar with and played a few games against. So is you and Alex at top table. Um, what did Alex bring? Um, Alex took McCabe. Oh, nice. Um, and he took three Jorogumo against me because they're willpower seven. And I was just like, these giant, so they're, then he normally wins them with this army, but they're these giant spiders. Well, you know what Jorogumo are, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but they're just having these three massive spiders on the board. And in complete contrast to Tom, whenever I see Reckoning, I shit myself. I'm terrible <laughs> at Reckoning. <laughs> 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 because I don't, despite sort of what, I'm not really that much of an aggressive player. So having to go and kill stuff, like to score points is quite, I find it quite difficult actually. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not your play style. No, it's not. And that's why I was saying earlier, I struggle with Nakima because it just doesn't match my play style at all. Um, But I was quite, I was quite fortunate in this one. Teddy was just incredible. Um, So in round, in turn one, um, Alex sort of took a bit of a gamble and extended a Jorogumo to come up my Teddy. Um, But he'd already given him an upgrade with McCabe. So he was fast and the Jorogumo have the ability to um, gain a flicker to get positives to the attack and damage. So there was a fast Jorogumo who had effectively two focused attacks on me and then another attack. He did zero damage to Teddy. Did absolutely nothing. Missed either missed the attacks or Black Joke at the damage. It was just it was it was bad for Alex because that meant yeah. Teddy then activated and he took that Jorogumo off in one round of combat. So in that first turn, might have been in like the first couple of activations, he'd lost one of his big beaters and I hadn't. Um, and I think that started to tip the scales towards how much killing power he had later in the game. Um, cause the same thing happened turn two. <laughs> Teddy took another Jorogumo off the board. Wow. Um, so Alex had sort of two halves of a crew. He had a very schemey crew and then these giant Jorogumo who were his killing power. Yeah. And two of them were gone, you know, very early into turn two. So at that point, I was a bit like, oh, maybe I can do this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a really sort of cinematic first few turns. It was really good. Yeah. It's very funny to me because I, I feel like the conventional wisdom that I keep hearing, and maybe I just haven't been keeping up to date and it's changed, is I, I hear a lot of people kind of, uh, you know, pooing all over Teddy, but it sounds from you and Tom, it sounds like, uh, you guys find Teddy to be definitely worth the points. Oh, yeah. I take him in every game without fail. Yeah. He's just, he's, he's there every game. And I always, also, I always run Serena Bowman as well. Um, and she's got a quick action heal and condition removal. So between her, and Teddy's own abilities to heal. Um, like sometimes I'll run a sacrificial daydream or Alp towards Teddy, and he's got a quick action to eat a friendly model to heal their wounds. Right. So if he's really injured, he'll eat something, 
like and help heal three wounds, uh, heal five wounds, sorry. And then Serena can heal him to full. So he can just be on this murderous rampage. And, you know, with Flurry and his like three, four, six damage track, he's just, he's got, he should kill something every turn. And if he doesn't, I don't think you're playing him right. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think anyone sort of... could disparage like a min three, three attack model. No, you know it's, I mean? like, it's, it's, inc- it's just so good, isn't it? It's reliable and reliability yeah. is what you want. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and like Emma said, the, I mean, he might appear fragile at first, but with all of the healing, both in a Pandora crew and in a uh, Dreamer crew, um, if you are smart about your activation orders, um, you can keep them up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... <sighs> Yeah, just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, yes, that is the answer. <laughs> if you can get your activations right, Teddy won't die and he can just wreck face. And that's the key. So a lot of times, you know, people go, well, you know, God, I was so tough because they had all that healing and stuff like that. You know, timing your heals and knowing how what in what order to do things and is is a lot harder than people realize um so i don't want to make it for those listening i don't want to make it sound like you know oh, that's super easy you know you've got all that healing and you can keep teddy up um it, it takes some very smart decision making in game in order to time that right um i can't tell you how many times i've seen um and i've done it because uh i'm not good at this but um where you you know you left you you, you didn't time things right you over exposed a big beater and even though you had the healing the healing didn't come in soon enough or you didn't time it correctly or you used it too early or, or positioning was wrong um so there, there's definitely a, a a good amount of skill involved in making teddy stay up yeah i i completely agree because i fall i, I always mess that up with chompy because i've got the yeah. two big beaters i can tend to keep one alive and not the other because I need to be using those activations sort of reliably on one to make sure mm-hmm. they stay going. So either Chompy dies because I overextend him, and although he's a henchman, Soulstone Prevention can only do so much. Mm-hmm. So I can't... So I think you're definitely right. You have to be really sort of choice and precise with where you send your healing and how you sort of do that activation control because if you spread it too thin, you end up with two very injured big models and then they both die. I'd echo that as well. The, the, the Carver for me has been effectively nicknamed Carvey Dent because he's usually dead while Teddy lives. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very much that kind of you have to prioritize what you're healing. Yeah, absolutely. You can pick one, I think. And this is a situation where being on offense is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to focus fire something down than it is to defend something that's getting that focus fire. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah. yeah All right, definitely. guys. Well, um, congratulations, Emma, and, uh, oh. on that win. What was the final score? Uh, it was eight three. Wow! Wow! <laughs> I that, was so um, pleased. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you were. Um, uh, was it an uncomfortable drive home? Um, I didn't find it uncomfortable. <laughs> I was I was so happy because, like, like James said, going into this this tournament meant quite a lot to me because um, I was. I'd been sitting like, you know, in top 10 in the rankings for quite a while. And I was like, I'll go to nationals. I just have to do reasonably well. But I think I just got a bit stressed about having to do so well that I tanked massively because I got in my own head and I was overthinking stuff. So I almost dropped out of qualifying for for Masters, sorry. So going into this event, I was like, oh shit, I really need to podium here. Otherwise, I'm not going to get my Masters invite. And then I saw I was playing Alex in the last round. And I was just like, oh... I play him so much and the amount yep. of times I actually win 
like reliably and comfortably is so few and far between that I was just like, I was a bit disheartened, but then there was like a montage moment where I was like singing Eye of the Tiger in my head <laughs> and like psyching myself up for it. And apparently that works. So I, I suspect know. Alex was secretly relieved that he gave it his all um, and, and you got out ahead because I'm not sure I'd have, uh, I'm not sure I'd have been, been, been brave enough to give it my all um, in, in that game and risk, uh, risk, you know, being on Radix couch or something for the next uh, six months. I think I don't think I'd have had, uh, had the balls to, uh, to, to go all out there. So unfortunately for uh, those of you in the UK, um, and James, you have been subject to this before, um, is I usually end up bugging the crap out of somebody on Messenger who's playing and uh, just to kind of, you know, find out what's going on and how things are going. And uh, Alex, un- unfortunately for him, I was the one, he was the one I picked to, to bug. And uh, I can tell you, I'm a, a um, he was couldn't wait to tell me was super excited on messenger to tell me who the top table was. <laughs> um, and then um, I, I would venture to guess that he was happier that you won than if had he won. Um, like he was super excited when he messaged me that you had, that you had won the, you know, the won the matchup and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I can't, I don't know Alex quite well enough to say that, um, you know, that he would have been happier had he won, but, um, I can tell you that, uh, it, it, he, as he expressed to me, he was super excited that, uh, you had to win. There's a timeline where this is a far saltier podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> That's funny. But, I think um, you- he was probably happy that I won because it meant he had a lift to the Masters weekend. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it. Um, but boy, what a um, that's brutal. So he definitely rolled the dice with those Jorgermo, and it just looks like the cards went against him. Yeah, I think he lost. He lost his killing power. Yeah, quite early on, and then he had some scheme runners, but hooksters aren't exactly difficult to kill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had. Um, he took. Um, detonate the charges and harness the ley lines. So they were all quite reliably sort of near my models and in, and on the center. So it's not like they were scheming off on a flank or anything like that. So they were definitely within sort of threat range to kill. Um, so it just sort of ended up as a bit of a downward spiral, I think, for him as yeah. he lost sort of hemorrhaged models left, right, and center. Reckonings like that. If you, if you go for a, an aggressive reckoning game, it goes one of two ways pretty quickly. You either wind up yeah. compounding your advantage or combining your disadvantage. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it tends, you tend to figure it out pretty early, which direction that's going to go to. Hmm. Absolutely. So guys, let's take another quick break. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we've got two seasoned Malifaux tournament players and someone who's relatively new. I want to talk and learn from each of them kind of um, what they do to prepare, prepare for an event. And I also want to talk a little bit about some play etiquette uh, during an event. So, so we're going to take one more break and uh, take advantage of who we have on the show. We'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay, so now that um, you know, we know uh, obviously uh, how each of those rounds went, um, I would be 
interested to know because I, I know there's a lot of people out there that get very nervous before an event. We've got a big event coming up uh, when we're recording this. It's the weekend before the big North Carolina Grand Tournament, which is next weekend. Um, and I can tell you the locals are starting to get nervous. Um, we've got people coming in from all over the country to play in it. Um, you know, James, you've played in a lot of events. Um, are there certain things that you do to prepare for an event, whether it be something that's ritualistic or something that's truly kind of training? Um, what is your, you know, your the week before the two weeks before an event what do you do to prepare yeah i I have some stuff that's that's practical and some stuff that's ritualistic um so i'll probably cover both um generally if we know the objectives in advance um i write a few lists and generally i tend to write a list for um for probably two different masters um for each round and and sort of play about with that quite often they'll they'll there you know depending on which way I want to go, I'll kind of look at the schemes and just go, which ones are, and what do I want to target? Do I want to almost cross off the sheet before I start? Um, and think about a little bit about what do I want to, you know, what, what, what's probably my worst case scenario in that round? What would I absolutely not want to face? Um, and generally I'll, I'll try and play my home games, my games at my local store. Um, I will aim to sort of play the more difficult rounds from my perspective from, you know, for that, for the event, um, in advance where I can. If I don't know the events in advance, I tend to, um, I've got, um, a random little spreadsheet with a macro in it that will randomize me, um, a set of objectives, uh, an opposing faction and sort of a concealed, um, opposing master. And I'll kind of go, go through the hiring process. Um, you know, a couple of times it's a good thing to do, um, you know, potentially on lunch, on a lunch break at work or, or if I've got 15 minutes in mm-hmm. an evening, um, it's a relatively quick exercise I can go through. So that I tend to do a little bit of that and, and just kind of know in advance roughly what I'm thinking of taking. And inevitably, that's never the crew I actually take. Um, but, but right. having somewhere to start and having thought about some of those pitfalls in advance helps in the stress of a day. Um, and, and, and sort of, um, and that for a big event, I'll tend to go through my case, take out anything I know I'm not going to need, make sure I know that I've got everything there. So I've not got a blind panic on the day. Oh, yeah. Oh, my, where's my blank card? You know, make sure all my cards are mm-hmm. in order. Just as much as I can do to kind of take any stress or mental, um, work out of the day that I can do in advance. I, t- I tend to aim to do that. Uh, I have some ritualistic stuff as well. So for, um, for a major event, I'll tend to get my hair cut before the event. Um, that's um, interesting. <laughs> I, I do have some lucky tournament socks, um, but the less said about those, the better. Um, but uh, <laughs> no talk about it. Go into detail now. <laughs> I, I'm not discussing my my underwear in detail on the internet. I, I don't think. I think that's got to be a Patreon exclusive. Um, <laughs> oh, but um, um, you know, there is a third floor wars Patreon. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure uh, that, that's uh, that's tanked its uh, its sub rating uh, right now. But um, um, but but. You know, I do have some ritual stuff, but broadly, the main thing is any any thinking I can do in advance will help me. Uh, you know, help me not yeah. have to do the thinking on the day because there's enough thinking in Malifaux um, before you start. Um, and probably the only other thing um, before I waffle on too much um, in the I, I tend to try and set sort of measuring expectations early, so I will make a point mm-hmm. of really measuring carefully my first few moves, which tends. You know, opponents then tend to cotton on to the fact that I, I want them to measure effectively. And I, I tend to try and set the expectation that, you know, we're going to talk positions through, measure effectively. And then I'll, if, if players don't get that hint and, and sort of we're getting bendy tape measures and stuff, I'll often, um, 
I'll take a call between just saying something or matching their style, depending on where I, th- I think we're, you know, I think we are um, in the game. Sort of flex my measuring style to other people. That, that's a little bit. That's a little bit to taste, but um, yeah, um, it, it's one of those where sometimes it's easier to have uh, easier to match your opponent's measuring style than explain to them in detail why the way they're measuring isn't accurate. Um, and sometimes in the heat of a, of a game, that's actually that's easier to do. Um, it'll be yeah. probably not enforcing the correct behaviors. Yeah, I, I do. I do something very similar, James. I, I try to set the tone um, and be very specific and precise in my measuring. And I, I, it's funny. I don't even think I realized it, but I'm super verbal about it um, to set the tone. Um, now, when I see um, shenanigans going on on the other side, and and understand that a lot of times this is not intentional cheating, um, uh, but because pe- not everybody is um, as psychotic as I am about measuring um, and. Uh, I, I, it, it, tr- it just bugs the crap out of me when people are not precise, um, in their, in their measuring. Uh, so I get, what I do is I get super passive aggressive at that point. <laughs> and, um, I'll, you know, somebody will do a move and I, I know damn well that that wasn't a six, six inches that they moved. So, um, being, uh, uh, kind of a jerk, I'll go, uh, well, what's the move on that model again? And, you know, and the goal is six inches. And I said, and was that six inches? <laughs> it um you know and uh, sometimes that works um i um yeah i i i tend to be precise but I, it's funny i i do the same thing james where i try to kind of set the tone emma uh how different is uh is there anything that james does pre-tournament that you share with him or anything different that you do lucky socks <laughs> well <laughs> you say that i do always wear dungarees that's like Isn't my war gaming. Like I, because then I don't know. They're comfortable. I feel good if I've got dungarees on and I've got a flower crown on or flowers in my hair. Generally, I do quite well. So I've become a bit superstitious now that I have to sort of same way James gets his haircut. I do my hair and my makeup, and I wear like my war gaming dungarees. Um, <laughs> and, if, and the t- and in fact, I didn't wear them at nationals, and I did terribly. And well, then I did wear them at this tournament, and I won the fucking thing. You know, it's definitely <laughs> dungarees that are the, for the win. Um, I I do, I think I'm probably, I'm normally in denial about events for a good few weeks before they're about to happen. And then suddenly it gets to a week before and I'm like, shit, I probably should prepare for this. Um, so I do look at the lists, if t- the schemes and strats, if they're out and I'll try and do a test game. Um, and because, you know, me and Alex play against each other a lot. There's always yeah. somebody I can get a game with. Even if it's like the night before, we're like, quick, should we practice this? Um, but especially because I play the same master for quite a good chunk of time. I often have a standard sort of core point that I always start with. Um, so it makes that decision process, like what James was saying, a lot easier when I'm actually yep. at the event, because I'm always going to take these five models. So then it's just, do I want a bit more killy? Do I want a bit more schemey? Mm-hmm. And I've tend to pocketed all my models into little brackets of if this pool's there, take this. And it's just, it just takes that sort of pressure off it, I think. Something I do do at events where I maybe don't want or need to do as well is I make like a bad things bingo list. Me and Alex have done this uh, a few nationals. So you make a list of all fun things that you can try and achieve. So if your <laughs> game is going terribly, you know, you can be like, try and kill someone's master with your totem. Or, right. you know, you make all these other little mini objectives that you can do that are really fun. So it doesn't matter how the game went. You got lots of mini wins and then you leave that game feeling really good. And your opponent's like, oh, I won, but that's okay. Cause they had a great time doing whatever their little 
thing was that they were doing. That's um, funny. <laughs> it just takes some of the pressure off, I think. Yeah. And it's something I've tried to get a lot better at because I used, I, I can get a bit salty when I lose. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm definitely getting much better at that by coming up with other ways to sort of enjoy the game and not put too much emphasis on having to win everything all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it, I, uh, I struggle with it. Um, I struggle with it and I, um, keeping, keeping my emotions in check, um, is, is something that, uh, I still work on and, and it doesn't, when I'm playing, it doesn't, it doesn't tend to show itself as me getting salty necessarily though. That, yeah. that has happened. What'll, what'll end up happening is I, I, I throw good money, uh, after bad. So I'll make a mistake or see a mistake made or something will go not my way with card flips, you know, my, Teddy takes out my Jorah Grumbo type thing. And what that'll end up do is take me off my game. And then I'll, I'll just, I'll just compound that either mistake or that bad flip of the cards and turn it into something terrible. Um, and I think both your and James's, um, uh, advice is good, which is, you know, removing stressors, um, it can help minimize that, um, you know, getting good night's sleep, uh, you know, just all of those types of things. Um, Actually eating think, sensibly and not just eating yeah. like three chocolate bars every round and having like 10 cups of coffee. That's yeah. not a good idea. <laughs> you end up like as a gibbering mess by the end of round one. Yep. Yep. And hydrating too yeah. uh, is another big thing is to make sure I have something to drink. Um, so Tom, the thing I want to talk to you about um, is um, kind of, I don't and I don't, I don't have the right term for it, but kind of table etiquette or um, how to be a good opponent. So you had, you know, as we talked through the three rounds, you were very complimentary of each person that you played. Um, and, you know, we kind of talked about how welcoming the community is. I would be interested um, to hear from you, you know, what kind of, what makes somebody a good opponent? So even if you were to lose the game, you walk away going, I really enjoyed that game. Um, can you kind of give us an idea of either what you saw um, or, or or maybe something that you do even in other games that really can help uh, create that uh, positive experience? Yeah, it's something I'm quite passionate about from the games that I've played. I think I mentioned earlier on the podcast, I'm quite nervy going to organize play um, simply just because I think when you've been a face on screen for a little bit, you are worried about how you show. And I think I did some something similar in terms of preparation that uh, I drove up with a friend and on the way up in the car, we just chatted through the schemes and the strats together. Um, I hadn't looked on them at that point and it was both of us going into our first event new and that kind of eased things. But I think you tend to think about events in social and mechanical viewpoints. And I think in terms of socially, the first thing that I'll often do when I play someone is offer to buy them a drink. So at the start of the game, at the end of the game, whichever the result is, I'll offer to get them a drink. And that often is the icebreaker of sitting down Mm -hmm. against someone who maybe you don't know and already developing that rapport. Um, I think a lot of players can can also be aware of the difference between freedom of information and helpful information. Obviously, Malifaux is a game where you are free to know all the information that's not being hidden, you know, in terms of like what cards do, what characters do. My opponents weren't just forthcoming in this ability does this, it's this ability is good for this. So it, it right. didn't give away their strategy, but at least gave me an indication of I'm going to use this now because my aim is to go in this direction. It's not I'm telling you what I'm going to achieve. It's this is useful. I think as a Pandora player, I have to start every game by going, this is what Mood Swings does. This is what Misery does. This is how I'll try and use it because it's such an obscure mechanic. I had to really look on the forums to wrap my head around it to start with. And I think there's a lot of credit to somebody doing that early on and establishing that conversation because you're there to play a game with someone 
And yep. the quicker you build up that rapport, I think it was interesting, James, saying about measuring. If you go to the more mechanical side, I think I use measuring sticks. I think it, being from a gill ball back, um, background, if you use tape measure, you're going to get slapped because yep. it's such a precise game for it. So I've got these measuring sticks and proxy bases, and I just put them in the middle between the two sides, and immediately it's a case of use whatever you want, but if you want to, go for it. And I often find that by second or third activation, we're sharing those quite a lot because they're, nice. they're more precise, they're nicer, they're more clean to use, and it's just a bit more... They're big, beautiful models, but as we know in Malifaux ones, you want to be careful with them, and these measuring sticks are nice and easy to use. Um, I think you've also... Touched on maybe saltiness can be a thing. I think I'm, I'm in a fortunate position that I've got hammered so many times on camera that I've kind of <laughs> kind of developed coping mechanisms, which is to quietly cry. But um, I think the other thing you can do is, is if you're faced with somebody who is perhaps not having the greatest amount of time and they go into that kind of clipped language just meeting it with aggressive politeness. It might be the Britishness in me, but it's that kind of, you know, if they're struggling with something, just slowing it down and go, and yeah, yeah. if they're being quite blunt, just go, oh, that's great. Can you just explain to me what the mechanic is there? Or just asking a question that allows them to show with that off. You know, if they're really struggling, they're not happy. You know, I'm just going to walk up and I'm going to attack and be like, oh, have you got any cool triggers on that? And it just yeah. brings them back in. I think you are mutually responsible for each other's enjoyment. And, I think a lot of players could stand with hearing that information. I think you are not just there to kind of, and I, like Malifaux has been fantastic that everybody who I've played, I've chatted to afterwards and, you know, I'm looking forward to catching up with them again. Obviously Emma and James are part of similar chats and that. And I think that mutual attitude is definitely something that will ease your own internal stress, which sounds incredibly Buddhist and Zen, but it is that kind of thing of like, you know, if your opponent's happy, you'll probably be happy. Yeah, I tend to, the only thing I do, and it's very similar to what you're talking about, Tom, is I, I, I will just shower empathy. Um, yeah, if, especially with the flips. Say, yep. If I got lucky, I'll go, oh, that's, I really got lucky there. That was really, really brutal. Um, <clears throat> if I see something going against the opponent or they make a mistake, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how often I've made mistakes like that. And it take it takes some of the pressure off. Um, uh, and I agree. And I'll be honest with you, there's times where I have, it hasn't been bad luck um, where really I know I outplayed my opponent, um, but giving them that empathetic out, um, you know, during the game and after the game and go, you know, that was brutal. Um, that was a tough matchup. Um, you know, things kind of went my way, um, I think can help with that. And 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 actually, this is something I want to um, ask both Emma and James, but I'll start with you, Emma. Um, I, going back, you know, because you've played so many different people, so many different games. Um, have you had a matchup that you can think of in particular, we're not going to name names, where <clears throat> you really struggled because of the type of player or type of person they were? I'd be interested to know how, how you've managed um, challenging opponents, not challenging in a competitive way, but challenging in being in the same space they are, they're in. Oh, um, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it it is very difficult if you're in a if you're in um a situation with a player um or group of players that you you do have to challenge for what for whatever reason, um, and I think the only way you can do it or try to do it is is try and be as polite as you can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it's it's about that defined between being assertive and being aggressive. It's trying to get your point across and explain 
the situation and what's happening and how it's making you and other people feel without just outright having a go at somebody yeah. um, to challenge them in that way. And I think sometimes, especially in a competitive environment, that can be really quite difficult because, you know, sometimes it can be a competitive game where it's heated and it could be a clash of personalities where you don't get mm-hmm. on very well. And you're in a room full of other people who are watching this and it's, yeah, it's, it is difficult. And I think sometimes the best way is to sort of either just take yourself away from that situation. If, you know, being polite and trying to talk through it doesn't work or just taking a step back for 10 minutes and then going back in and trying again. Um, because sometimes you can't get on with everybody all the time and that's okay. (laughs) And that's fine, but it's just not having that situation explode into something incredibly negative when it as adults playing games shouldn't happen or shouldn't have to happen. Um, yeah, it should. It does. Yeah, it does though. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think it's a, a lot of what you're talking about there, Emma, is managing your own expectations. Um, and realizing maybe, uh, it's only going to be two hours so I can get through this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how, how about you, James? Um, you know, like, uh, situations where, um, you know, something that either there's a clash of personalities or even situations where you, you might, you might like have an ethical issue, maybe, uh, somebody who you might suspect of, um, not being on the up and up. Um, like how do you manage a difficult opponent? Um, I, I think it's about tightening up when, when you're not, um, uh, and setting an expectation. So, um, if there's someone, I mean, we talked about measuring earlier, if there's someone that, that, that I have a concern with there, it tends to be, you know, before we, you know, can we make sure we're measuring effectively? If we're going to, me- if you're going to make, um, you know, a move or a, a move that will then lead to a, a charge or a move that's going to lead to another attack, um, I'd like us to measure the whole thing before we move any part of it. Um, you can set those expectations up. Um, making sure you're cutting decks. Um, I get a lot of flack for cutting everyone's deck. Um, that is wrong. Um, I'm just going to say that yeah, I cut everyone's deck. It is right that that mm-hmm. everyone's deck gets cut. Um, the, the resistance to it is essentially based on this idea that that we shouldn't not trust each other. Um, I trust my neighbors. I still lock my front door. Um, yep. and, and I think there's a, you know, I think there's a, um, you know, there's sort of some basic stuff to not let it, um, not let it, not let things get out of hand. But I, I think the real thing as well is, is being honest and vocal and both with the player, um, and in more general sense, where there is behavior that I observe that is problematic and it's frank, you know, to be honest, very rare, um, you know, not being afraid to speak to the player about it, speak to the TO about it and making sure it's known. Cause where I've seen, mm-hmm real issues develop in the community and frankly they haven't been for a number of years which is very good it's been because things have gone unchallenged um yeah. and i you know from a professional standpoint i've done some you know done some work challenging um where i've you know had to challenge difficult behavior in a, in a professional environment and generally speaking nobody goes from um nobody get to the point generally that you're involved in in a serious infraction it's not that they woke up one morning and had a serious infraction that day it's there's a pattern of behavior leading up to that right and so it's about managing looking for a pattern of behavior and where there's something that's problematic you know doing your best to nip it in the bud and i've said things to teammates in the past um as, as i would to, to people in other teams i think it's just important we're we're vigilant and vocal um, but i appreciate yeah that is not the easiest thing in the world unfortunately it's yep. frankly very rare mm-hmm 
I, I was just going to say, as James finished, it is it is really rare. The Malifaux community is one of the best that I've come across for being yeah, honest lucky. and genuine and nice and approachable. Like it, I've, I've played 40k competitively, and that is just from my experience a few years ago just wasn't even comparable to how lovely Malifaux is. Like like James said, I think it is that open environment where you can sort of just make little comments to people and nip things in the bud. And it's, it's a learning and development thing. And it's something that as a community, we are really quite good at, I think. So although we're talking about challenging, like, you know, difficult situations, it's not, it's not something that you're going to have to do <laughs> every game, every tournament. Right. It's it is a really nice environment to be able to play in. Well, and, and we get, you know, and this kind of builds off of what you both said is we get the community we deserve and that we cultivate. Right. Um, and that's, you know, making sure that um, I'm probably the best way to verbalize this up. Every once in a while. So we have a local chat here in North Carolina. It's a Facebook messenger chat. and There's, you know, 30 some odd people in it. And um, uh, there's a couple of us that will uh, kind of moderate it a little bit. Um, so if tonally we see the chat going a certain direction or, um, you know, we we will jump in and say, you know, we we really kind of don't do that here. Um, and it nips it in the bud and it's respected. And, um, that, that's exactly, you know, what you guys are talking about, which is, you know, setting the tone and, and making sure the community is, um, what it is. So Tom, uh, the pressure's on you now. What is, what is the worst community out there? What game has the worst community? You mentioned a lot of players coming over from Gilball, but, um, no, I can't, <laughs> I can't possibly bash my first love. Um, I, <laughs> I've, I would say people who write YouTube comments, but, um, in general, oh, they are terrible. <laughs> in general, I don't think there's some, such a thing as a bad community. I think you hit the nail on the head there where it comes to moderating the tone. Yeah. And I think from a social media perspective, a lot of that is on the responsibility of both the company and their social media representatives, as well as those who produce content. The tonal shift that you might have is if something feels a little bit unbalanced, the initial cry of it's broken, which is then met with a very fierce, you're an idiot for saying it's broken, looking at you, Shenlong. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, that, that doesn't help anyone because that creates divisions. What I quite liked was that the, the event, there were about five, 10 Thunders players, I think, guys, and no one played Shen, but it wasn't so much a case of he's broken. It's more of a case of we understand this is a bit of a sensitive thing at the moment. This isn't a nationals event. Right. So let's not put anyone under that pressure. Pressure. I think a bad community is one that allows itself to become an echo chamber. And I've yeah. seen that ebb and flow in a multitude of games. And it'll happen in Malifaux and it'll wane away in Malifaux and the same with every other one. I think battling against that echo chamber, you know, someone, someone's conventional wisdom might be that I should be taking Iggy every single time with Pandora. Mm-hmm. Can't buy the model, so I don't care. <laughs> and the, the conversation is then different and that's an acceptable attitude to have. And I think like the things I was saying, when you play against someone on the opposite side of the table, maintaining that is just maintaining that discourse without being patronizing. You're there to play games and everybody's gone to have fun. Yeah. Toxicity happens when memes and in jokes and other people's perceptions become the zeitgeist and it becomes that kind of hive mind in a more negative fashion. And I think we can all fall into that trap. 
it's easy to do. And there's, there's kind of two levels here that I want people to think about. One is um, the I'm not going to participate in this, um, which is kind of that first level, which is you, um, you're tempted, your first reaction to get it out there, uh, you read something and what they wrote is stupid. So your first reaction is to, you know, go, you're an idiot, um, even if they're acting like an idiot. And, you know, kind of that first level is, is to uh, just say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to participate. And you talk about YouTube comments. Um, I, I can't tell you how many replies, Tom, I've typed up and was smart enough to delete. I agree. Um, be, uh, cause that, and that's what it is. I'm just, I'm not going to participate. Um, but there is a second level there, which is, um, that's sometimes is not enough, um, where you have to, you have to step in and go and, and say it out loud and go, this is not okay. Um, that's a hundred percent something. I think, you know, it, you, you can challenge in a way that is effective by simply stating the behavior, your emotive response to it and possible solutions. And I think this is maybe mm-hmm. my secondary school teacher coming out here, but it's essentially like, you know, say James, the example of measuring the measuring at the moment is a little bit vague. I'm feeling a little bit unsure about whether this is accurate. And I think it might lead to some misplays. Is it possible for us to sort this through and review it? And I think keeping that calmness, keeping that tone. And that can be, you know, far bigger for something far bigger in the game. You know, I feel that this strategy or this crew are a little bit doing this. It's making me feel this way. Here are the solutions that we can think about. Yeah, It's wording it in a constructive manner. And I think at the risk of doing a cheeky plug, we're, we're going to start doing Malifaux Battle Reports, but you'll notice the first thing we say at the start of every video is this is a narrative-focused battle report because we hope mm-hmm. to then nip in a bud those YouTube comments that you might get of, you should have done this at this timestamp. And it's like, well, right. yeah, but I wanted to do the thing that was fun. Yep. Um, so uh, uh, kind of the last thing uh, is, Tom, I need your phone number because the next time my six-year-old misbehaves, I'm just going to call you <laughs> and have you talk, talk her through and correct her because I felt very I felt very good about how you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I can't take any credit for it. It's a lot of failed <laughs> attempts to get to the solid <laughs> attempts that I can make now. That's funny. Well, um, uh, I really appreciate everybody's time. Um, uh, Tom, I know you've got some plugs. Um, We're going to have a link to your YouTube channel. Is there anything else that you want to plug? Um, I just want to say a massive thank you, not only to James and Emma and their, uh, you know, Malafolks group, which is in the Northwest, but also the, the Harlequins group that I'm part of. I've, I've never met such a welcoming, welcoming bunch. And rather than just shouting out names like a poorly addressed rock star, I just want to thank each and every one of them because I wouldn't have turned up to the event. I wouldn't have been able to have this opportunity without such a supportive, kind, encouraging group. And hopefully you'll see some of them pop up on YouTube soon because they're a fantastic bunch and they deserve to be recognized. That's awesome. Awesome. Emma, do you have any plugs? Um, not, not massively. Same sort of thing as, as Tom. We've got such a good community and that any events that are happening, especially in the Northwest, Carl runs them and he's so good and they're a lot of fun and everybody is, is, is really friendly and welcoming. So definitely come to them. I don't know. I, I probably should know, but I don't know the dates of the next ones off the top of my head. Um, but also, I want to say thank you for Alex for not being too grumpy that I beat him. He wasn't grumpy at all. <laughs> In fact, he was really pleased for me and really made up. He, he knew what, how much it meant to me. But I was just thinking back and I, I made him out to be a bit grumpy about it. And he wasn't at all. He was probably more excited than me. I was in shock, I think. Um, so, yeah. He's nice. <laughs> <laughs> You'll keep him, which is good. Yeah, he very can, he kind can of you. 
<laughs> oh, good. Good. How about you, James? Uh, just my usual shout out to uh, um, to my friendly local gaming store where uh, I always get a good game, Malifo, every week. Um, so that's Leodis Games in Leeds. And otherwise, yeah, I think that's uh, probably about it. I, I could have been good and looked up Carl's latest event, <laughs> but I didn't. So, well, you know what, James? Uh, yeah, just pop it to me a messenger, and I'll put it into the show notes. Okay, that oh, sounds like that we have it there. Well, guys, thanks again. Um, uh, I, I'm and James. Can't wait to have you back on the show again. And Tom, um, I hope that you'll uh, come back. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> just, like, just like them. I'm not allowed back. Clearly, I've just been relegated. <laughs> yeah, no, no. This, this is a this is a difficult conversation. Um, <laughs> the way Tell me that, how you're that, feeling. That, you as a guest did not make me feel very welcomed as a host. I'm <laughs> my solution I'm is... out from this now. I'm going out with the Willie record. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to have you on the goddamn show again. Love you too, babe. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was fun, Tom. Um, and uh, um, I really appreciate everybody um, all listening as well. So everybody have a good time. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. <coughs> I'm going to ask your permission, Eric. Can I, I? I was contemplating making a joke about Alex having to sleep on Radek's sofa um, if you beat you in the final <laughs> round. But I, I wanted to, yeah, I totally wanted to ask about this with the whole master yeah, situation like, of like this needs to come. It up. was just yeah, but I don't want to do that out of, out of nowhere. So no, 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 it's fine. That. Don't don't worry. Yeah, absolutely, okay. it's so, fine. I cannot, I'm probably going to take the piss story. out of him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay. I'll bring us back. All right. I've got to figure out where to put that first break. We picked up a new sponsor, so I had to add a break, and I don't like where it is, but I'll get over it. He's still swimming in his bathtub of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm making Tom. I'm making tens of dollars on this podcast. Well, um, I listened to the podcast. Was it you guys who did the podcast with the guy who made it? And yep. was like, he just went and knocked it together in three months. And I was just like, how? Oh, dude, I'm, I, so I, I, that's what I do for a living is I manage, uh, um, development teams. And I like, I mean, you probably could hear it in the podcast. Yeah. He blew my mind. That's real um, drive, real drive to get that done. Oh, and, and, to, and to, to, to not only put it together as fast as he did, but the quality, yeah. um, and, and some of them, you know, nobody will notice. Um, but as somebody who's, been involved in this for a long time i was just like holy shit like this guy knows what the hell he's doing yeah, i know his shit yeah yeah he really does it's very impressive and it turns out he's a pretty cool dude too all right so i'm gonna bring it back and james we'll start with you okay 
Cool. Uh, that means I probably should have some idea what I did. Uh, cool. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, shit, I made notes on this and left it downstairs. <laughs> it's okay. My notes are, you've missed me set to point out that my notes are in a different town. So, oh, no. Uh, that's fine. Just make it up. Um, just completely make it up. Yeah, this is it. I'm just going to, I'll dip into some mild slander as well. So, uh, we'll test the editing skills. <laughs> that's funny. All right. A good segment. Sorry that I'm rumbling so much. I think I'm quite nervous about this, actually. I've not actually had to speak about... I'm really good at doing my games, but if Alex asks me afterwards, how did it go? I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. (laughs) (laughs) This goes to some weird never-born mode. Exactly. Like, I've played so many games of Malifaux that I'm just like, I don't know, I scored some points. Dreamer probably summoned something. And it just happens now, sort of like passively. Just summon like, you know... demon and just make up a, like a creature for it and just you know. yeah oh, just sort of I'm sort of exposed to Malifaux I don't play it, it just sort oh, of so around me everyone's rolled back she starts flipping cards <laughs> <laughs> I would advise then Emma because I, I occasionally make them the, the terrible error of listening to these back um, oh, and, no. um, <laughs> stuff. never do that Oh, I know. Just like, just I'm just like got sat there going like, "What on earth am I gibbering about?" Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that. I'm so glad there's not a camera because I'm doing so many hand movements while I'm trying to explain <laughs> what I'm funny. talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've right. listened to the ones you've done with Alex and he can chat bollocks for hours so you've done pretty good with him <laughs> I mean I only end up putting about a third of what Alex says onto the actual <laughs> final <thing. laughs> no that's not true it wouldn't um, surprise me though but Alex is a good test case though because I think Alex had that same kind of nerves initially too when he came on the show and you know now he has, has kind of figured it out um, yeah that's uh, true so uh don't stress. Um, and you can't get worse than Alex, so you're fine. <laughs> All right. I'll tell um, him you said that. Hey, oh, you can. I would say it to his face. <laughs> no, Alex knows I'm a big fan. Uh, all right, I'll bring us back. Um, I'd like to, you know, kind of learn, um, you know, what makes you a good opponent. Um, and kind of cover that as well. But um, dashing good looks usually helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not James. So, um, uh, <laughs> definitely not the dashing good looks. <laughs>